Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. The global climate change has given way to extreme climate shifts and climate-related natural disasters, particularly impacting small island nations and other countries of the global south. Today on Sojourner Truth, we bring you voices from the Alliance for Global Justice Echo Solidarity series entitled Climate Change Disasters in the Caribbean and Around the World. The moderators of the discussion are Aminta Zia and James Jordan. Panelists include Camilo Matos of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party, Bambos Shango of the National Network on Cuba, and Camille Landry, co-director of Alliance for Global Justice, as well as an interview with Jaisha Duta of the Climate Justice Alliance. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. New members of Congress will be sworn in today. Though Republicans have control of the House, Republican Kevin McCarthy's grasping for his political survival to lead the chamber. McCarthy could become the first nominee for Speaker in 100 years to fail to win support from his own colleagues in the first round of voting. Max Pringle has more. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy is struggling to gather the votes he needs to become the new Speaker of the House. McCarthy is hoping to convince enough ultra-conservative members of his party to support him. To that end, the California Republican has made a number of concessions, including allowing for a vote of any five Republican members to force a vote of no confidence in the Speaker. Existing rules put in place by Speaker Nancy Pelosi required a member of the majority party leadership to initiate a no-confidence vote. He also vowed to stop the practice of proxy voting, or virtual voting, requiring members to be in Washington to cast votes and participate in hearings. McCarthy faces potential challenges for the speakership from several members, including Andy Biggs of Arizona, Florida's Matt Gates, and Pennsylvania's Scott Perry. I'm Max Pringle. A growing number of Republicans in the House are calling on New York elect Congressman George Santos to resign amidst scandals he lied about his employment, heritage, and financial history. Emergency crews are sifting through the rubble of a building that was struck by Ukrainian rockets, killing at least 63 Russian soldiers Monday. Russia says it's destroyed two Ukrainian HIMAR launchers near Kramatorsk in the Donetsk. Ukraine's Air Force claimed it's down nearly 500 Russian drones since September. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky warns Russia's preparing a spate of attacks using Iranian drones. Karen Chamas reports. In his nightly address, President Vladimir Zelensky said Russia is planning what he called a prolonged attack by Shahed exploding drones. Zelensky accused Russia of trying to break Ukraine's resistance by exhausting Ukraine's people, air defense and energy. Russia's President Vladimir Putin is attempting to boost confidence in Moscow's flawed war efforts. 
Ukraine's effective counteroffensive, which is backed by Western-supplied weapons, has brought criticism in some Russian circles of Russia's military performance. I'm Karen Chamas. An ultra-nationalist Israeli cabinet minister who was convicted for inciting racism has visited a holy site used by Muslims with a large contingent of police officers in tow, sparking condemnation by Arab leaders and Palestinian officials. Itamar Ben-Gavir, who now oversees Israeli police, entered the site known to Jews as a Temple Mount and to Muslims as the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound today. Here's Palestinian Authority's prime minister. The storming of Al-Aqsa Mosque by the Israeli minister Ben Gavir this morning constitutes a serious challenge to the feelings of the Palestinian people. We call on our people to confront such incursions that aim to make Al-Aqsa Mosque a Jewish temple. This is a violation of all international norms, values, conventions, laws and Israel's pledges to the American president. Earlier in the day, Palestinian officials said a 15-year-old boy was killed by Israeli army fire near the occupied West Bank city of Bethlehem. Tens of thousands of British rail workers will stage a fresh round of strikes today, expected to disrupt services all week. Around half of the UK's railway lines are closed, and only a fifth of services are running amidst a long-running dispute over pay and working conditions. Julia Chapman has more. Rail workers are beginning another 48-hour strike over pay and conditions in the UK. Customers are being advised to avoid travel if they can because of severe disruption to services. The government insists the unions are rejecting reasonable new offers on pay. But Mick Lynch of the RMT union says industrial action will go on if employers and ministers don't change their stance. We have a mandate for another five months now. I hope that isn't necessary. I hope it's not necessary to to take further action. I want to get a solution. But if we can't get a solution, we will have to continue our campaign. We're trying to defend safety on the railway. We're trying to defend the services that the public get. And we're trying to defend our members' conditions and get them a pay deal, which we haven't had in most cases for two or three years now. Julia Chapman reporting. Latin American leaders converged on Brazil to meet with President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva on his first full day in office Monday. On his first day as president, Lula signed a decree that guarantees a monthly stipend for poor families and another decree to tighten gun control. He said his priorities are fighting poverty and investing in education and health. He also said he will bring illegal deforestation to the Amazon to a halt. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. In 2022 alone, climate-related disasters took place in Vietnam, Pakistan, Cuba, Congo, Thailand, Nigeria, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Florida, Japan, Honduras, the Philippines, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, Alaska. A series of heavy rains, hurricanes, typhoons, and floods that have hit these areas have all been tied to climate change. These global warming catastrophes took place even as leaders from across the world gathered for the annual UN Conference on the Environment known as COP27. In June of 2021, Luma, the Texan-Canadian venture, assumed management of Puerto Rico's electricity grid and almost immediately 
there were a series of harmful power outages. That electric grid started failing though, even before Hurricane Fiona, which took place on September 18, 2022, when it made landfall in Puerto Rico and left the entire island without power. By the way, Fiona hit Puerto Rico approximately five years after Hurricane Maria devastated that island. Camilo Matos of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party will explain why Puerto Ricans are calling for the immediate reinstatement of the PRIPA public utility company and its union, which was busted up as a result of privatization. We will now bring you voices from the Alliance for Global Justice Echo Solidarity series entitled Climate Change Disasters in the Caribbean and Around the World. Hello, everyone. My name is Amin Zazea. And my name is James Jordan. This is episode one of AFGJ's new monthly program, the Eco Solidarity Update, a monthly roundup of news about eco struggle and the struggle for liberation. Be sure and visit our website at afgj.org and sign up to receive our alerts. And if you feel like slipping us some cash, that's where you can do it. You can also subscribe to the Alliance for Global Justice YouTube page where these updates will be posted. So James, what do eco-struggle and liberation have to do with each other anyway? What are we trying to get liberated from? We're trying to get liberated from colonialism, war, global capitalism, liberation from everybody that's destroying this planet. We can't save the planet, until we free ourselves. So that's what we're against. What are we for? We're for rising up and fighting back. We see the planet Earth is resisting and fighting for her own liberation. Let's be part of that. We still believe it. A better world is possible. There you have it. That's why we do it. Every month, AFGJ's Eco Solidarity Update will bring you a program of critical updates, followed by special guest interviews for a more in-depth focus. To begin today's first episode ever, our top story is about climate-related disasters that have happened around the world in Vietnam, Pakistan, Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Florida, Japan, Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Alaska. A series of heavy rains, hurricanes, typhoons, and floods that have hit these areas have all been attributed to climate change. These global warming catastrophes began even as leaders from across the world gathered in New York to kick off the UN's Climate Week. The worst case has been in Pakistan, where one third of the nation was submerged by floods from heavy monsoon rains. More than 1,500 persons have lost their lives, over 1.8 million houses have been destroyed, and half a million people are living in climate refugee camps. Officials from both Pakistan and the United Nations have attributed the scale of the storm to climate change. Scientists say that the amount of water released by monsoon rains in Pakistan has increased by 75%. Meanwhile, halfway across the world, the Caribbean has been slammed with two major hurricanes, the first one being Fiona by Ian. For Puerto Rico, an island that remains colonized by the United States, at least two people have been killed. More than two feet of rain has fallen, and the nation's privatized electric company, Luma Energy, has failed after the public company, PREPA, was sacked and its union broken and replaced. 
the National Guard has relocated more than 1,500 people from their homes. In neighboring Dominican Republic, they have also suffered major damage drenched with more than 20 inches of rain. Following Hurricane Fiona, Central America was inundated with flooding that left two dead and displaced hundreds of people. Without pause, the region was later severely impacted by Hurricane Ian. Considerable material damage was reported, although there was no loss of life. In Western Cuba, there was major damage to the nation's infrastructure. The Category 3 hurricane carries sustained winds of more than 200 kilometers per hour. Its landfall in Florida made it one of the strongest storms to ever strike the Gulf Coast state. It has been deemed a historic disaster. At least five have died and thousands are still waiting to be rescued. In this tragic dichotomy, the massive differences between capitalism and socialism are clear. And certainly climate catastrophes are by no means bound to this particular region. In Alaska, we are hearing about the strongest storms in recorded history of the Bering Sea and the worst flooding in the city of Nome since 1974. In Japan, Typhoon Namdal dropped two feet of rain in 24 hours. In Vietnam, flooding and damage was experienced through Typhoon Noru, which was downgraded to a tropical storm. What does this have to do with climate change? Climatologist and the author of the recent book, The New Climate War, Dr. Michael E. Mann noted in an interview that it's not hard to see how climate change has made natural disasters more devastating across the planet. The physics isn't that difficult here, Mann explained. You make the planet warmer, you get the sort of devastating flooding that we're seeing right now with these landfalling hurricanes. Michael Weiner, who is a senior scientist for the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, puts it even simpler, telling us, The worst storms will get worse. We'll bring you more in the second part of today's program when we are joined in a roundtable with Camilo Matos of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party and Bamboshi Shango, who is a member of both the National Network of Cuba, a board member of both the National Network of Cuba on Cuba and the Alliance for Global Justice. We will also play a pre-recorded interview with Jaisha Dutta in Florida from the Climate Justice Alliance. Just in time for this global warming-fueled hurricane season. From Washington, D.C., we're learning that congressional hearings have revealed that oil companies have been gaslighting the public about climate change and their efforts to mitigate the damage they do. Earlier this month, Congress held its first, or its, excuse me, its third session of oversight and reform committee hearings on the fossil fuel industry. Memos revealed how big oil company executives had repeatedly misled and lied to the public about their companies and climate change. We also know that according to a September 20th, 2022 study carried out by Bloomberg, that 90 companies are responsible for two thirds of historic climate change and that 83 of these are producers of oil, coal and natural gas. Maybe instead of calling it global warming, we should call it mobile warming. In reviewing memos obtained from ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and BP, House Committee Co-Chair Ro Khanna said that the memos reveal a culture of intense disrespect and that the corporation's climate pledges rely on unproven technology, accounting gimmicks, and misleading language to hide the reality. Big oil executives are laughing at the people trying to protect our planet. 
while they knowingly work to destroy it. We're now going to ask our special guests to join us for a roundtable on these devastating storms and floods and on climate change, climate justice, and what we can do about it all. Following the roundtable, we will play a special pre-recorded audio interview with Joisha Dutta speaking to us from Florida. We are now joined by Banboshi Shango of the National Network on Cuba and Camilo Matos of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. Uh, let's see, can, we have everybody on screen, right? Good. Uh, Bamboshi. Oh, and Good we morning. had Camille. We also have Camille Landry, who was actually with you recently in Cuba. And Camille is part of Alliance for Global Justice. Perhaps, Camille, would you like to start off with a question? Yeah, I absolutely do have a question. One of the things that I've noticed when looking at the reports of the damage done by the storm is that although entire regions, everybody in the region were affected. It seems to me just from a quick glance that the people who suffered most are indigenous people and people of color, people who, um, who have less money. Wealthier people were able to evacuate. Um, people who didn't have the resources to do that had to stay there and wait the storm out. And they're the ones holed up in shelters right now. Um, and there, it also seems that people who work the land are more heavily affected. Um, you know, this, this storm has ruined crops in the area. So is this another example of how when, when something happens to a region that's universally affected, that the major pain um, accrues to people of color, to indigenous people, uh, to the poorest people in the, in the community? I'm glad you raised that question because the effect of the storm, obviously on places where people are not really looked at as items that must be primary, but instead, are a means to items that must be primary, then under those circumstances, you have this destruction. Camille, do you have any response to that? So in, in Puerto Rico, definitely people, the poorest people were affected. Hurricane Maria happened in 2017, yep. destroying a lot of houses. And those that were poorest that weren't able to, that had, wooden houses, then had tin roofs. A lot of them ended up having tarps, blue tarps, and they, they actually, like you fly over Puerto Rico and you can see the blue tarps. And, and there was no replacement for those roofs. So now this hurricane comes in, uh, Fiona, um, which is a lot weaker, but it brought a lot more water. And those people lost their roofs all over again. During the earthquake in the south in 2020, the people that had their houses constructed were not the best way are the ones affected. The, you know, you had houses collapse. And so now you have this hurricane, which brought a lot of flooding to a lot of areas. And they had a lot of devastation, but also those places that weren't hit as hard, but weren't repaired after Hurricane Maria, they suffered a lot because they, they was never fixed. It was only a Band-Aid. The government never came in to, to fix, and there was no assistance, there's no programs to, to help these people out. Camilo, you were actually in Puerto Rico 
Mexico when Hurricane Fiona hit. That must have been a really frightening experience. I'd like to just ask what was that like a little bit for you as you know you're right on the ground and what's the general situation? What did you experience there in your community as people began to come out of this powerful storm? I was there for the celebration 100 years of, of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. And of course, our events got canceled because because the hurricane. So we were in the San Juan area and we decided to move to to the west of the island. And, you know, it was at, at that point, it was still mostly, you know, regular precautions, you know, stay inside. And so we had to hurry up and get to where where we had to go. But I was already receiving, before the, the storm even hit land, I was receiving reports from my aunts. And they lived in the metro area, my aunt and her neighbor, that they already lost electricity. So, I mean, the, the electric system is, is very shoddy, and people suffer outages when there isn't a storm. And, and so there were people losing power before this storm even uh, fully hit the island. By the time I got to the west side of the island, electricity was gone throughout the island. And we rode out the, the storm. It was a strong storm. One of my cousin's roof, he has a tin roof and, and the wind blew. I actually got a recording of, of the wind blowing it off. When the storm finished, it was repaired. But the next day after the the, the bulk of the storm had gone, we tried to do wellness checks on people we knew, and we were able to, in the west side, we were still able to because it wasn't the part affected really strong. But as we went south, we can tell the flooding. And there was one part where we're going on the, on the major highway, and we're on the top of a hill, and we look out, and it looks like big lakes up ahead. And then we get to the, the bottom of the hill, and the cops had cut it off. And it's because there was flooding over there. And then later on, you know, we get the reports about the amount of flooding that actually was happening. So we had, I didn't get to actually get to go all the way to the south because of that. There were other people that, that were making, had to go back to the metro area and go south to try to give assistance. But And there's brigades in Puerto Rico, which is a great thing. People, communities just creating brigades is one of the best things. If you are going to donate, find one of the brigades in, in community-made um, brigades. Don't give to the government or major these large non-for-profits because these are people helping themselves, coming together to, to help each other. Aminta, you've got a question for Amboshi. Think me both, right? Amboshi, you yourself are from the island of Jamaica. You've lived in the U.S. most of your life. And you've traveled around the world, so you know a little about different countries and how they respond to natural disasters. Do you see a big difference in how a socialist country like Cuba deals with hurricanes compared to, say, occupied Puerto Rico? Camilo, I suspect you'd want to respond to this question as well. No, I um, well, you should respond. You were there in Cuba, and then we can hear from Camilo after you're done. But okay. just a, a little bit of the comparison between, like, Cuba's preparedness versus, like, a... Puerto Rico or a non-socialist country in the area. 
Cuba is a, an example to the world of how this can be done, even in one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere. And Cuba is poor because of the American embargo. You know, we have to recognize that. But I see a difference in the way that the country prepared and in the way that the country responded. We were actually in Cuba about a week after Maria hit the island a couple of years ago. And by the time we got there, really just like six, seven days after after the hurricane, we could see that uh, virtually every roof was covered. Every street was clear. Grandmamas were out there removing debris from the street so traffic could flow and, and preparing food in their homes to take into the school so the children could, could attend school and do what needed to be done. The island responded. But more than that, Cuba has a, a policy in which they have planned in advance for shelter for everybody in the coastal regions of the country. People know where they've got to go and they know how they're going to get there. All of the buses, all of the trucks, even private vehicles are called into service to transport people. And when they go, they're not just going alone. People bring their own food, but the government also has food supplies laid away in the shelter areas, which are mostly in the high highlands in the mountains. Um, you, can, you can bring your pets. And very critically, the neighborhood medics Cuba has um, uh, healthcare, nationalized healthcare for everyone. So if you're diabetic, your insulin is going to automatically be transported to the designated shelter for, for you. If you're pregnant, your prenatal vitamins are going to be available in your medical records so that people are not put at further risk because of a natural disaster. Preparedness is key and the response of the entire community is key and the government's willingness to provide um, all the resources that, that the people need to put them right is key. And that is what we lack in capitalist countries where rich people can jet off to a safe place and poor people are left to wade through chest high, filthy, chemical laden, you know, filthy water, disease ridden water and do the best they can to restore their homes and properties and survive. Yeah, I, I was going to talk about some of the same. My mother was on on the trip to Cuba in October of 2017. So I don't know if she was on your same trip or not. But she, yeah, she recounted how how everything was was put back together so quick in Cuba. Talking about a couple of days, they had electricity, and in Puerto Rico, it took months for Puerto Rico to, to get electricity. And then we have the Jones Act, which is a, a um, one of the tools of colonialism to to keep U.S., you know, as a colony, Puerto Rico is a U.S. market and it's made for U.S. And the Jones Act is one of those tools. Um, it doesn't allow any ships that aren't U.S. ships to, to port in, in Puerto Rico. The State Department has the final say on who can come. Uh, Cuba offered to bring the linemen, the people that put up the, the, the power supplies. They offered to send in medics. Venezuela offered to send in um, construction workers and other assistants, and they were all denied, not by Puerto Rico. They were denied by, by the United States. Um, at some point, the Jones Act was temporarily lifted, 
And people were like, oh, now we can receive aid from Venezuela or Cuba or wherever. And it's like, no, that, that still has to be approved. That the Jones Act just says that non-US ships can dock in Puerto Rico, but they still have to be approved by the, the colonizer, which is the United States. For this hurricane, one of the, the things that, that I was told somebody that came in right before the hurricane is that that the elders are, are being taken out of Puerto Rico because there's no assistance for them. There's, you know, they have family abroad. And I understand those people on the, you know, bringing their, their parents. And then the other people that, that were, like she mentioned, the people that other people are leaving are these colonizers, these people that come in with large amount of money, they buy up houses. And, but then when things get thick, they bounce, they leave Puerto Rico. They don't care. They see Puerto Rico as just a vacation spot, as an investment, and they don't care about the community, about the people. And the same thing with Luma. Right now, there's a situation where Luma, Luma being the new private electric uh, company. Yeah, Luma is the new private electric company. It's uh, owned by a company in Texas and Canada. So it's a joint project of two exploiters colonizers and there's still large parts of of Puerto Rico this is what 10 days now 12 days now with no electricity and so there was a part of the law that said the mayors of the towns can can take action to to bring back electricity in their towns and so the town where I'm from the mayor decided well yeah we'll we'll go get the experts Many of them unemployed because Luma didn't want to hire people with years and years of experience. They went and hired people that aren't certified, aren't qualified to to run lines. That's not something that that not even an electric engineer can can go up there and do those lines. You have to have a, a specific certification. If um, I can interrupt just a minute, just because yeah. I, I was reading about how the union, the union that was with uh, Preta, the public company, was broken and got rid of. And those experienced workers with years and years of experience, they shipped them out up to other industries, other areas of work. They, they got rid of all of the experienced people when they busted the unions, sent them out yeah, elsewhere. Definitely. And so the mayor, the time I'm from Isabela, the mayor hired linemen himself, got electricity restored in, in Isabela, and Luma started trying to sue them. They they send the, the police to, to the town and they try to pressure the, the city not to go through. It's like, if you can't fulfill your job, somebody else is doing it. You know, Luma can't do their job of restoring electricity and somebody and, and they're going to get they're going to sue them off of that. Um, it's just ridiculous. Good thing that the mayor didn't back down and other mayors of other towns are, are taking it out. And that just shows that that really the power is in, in the people themselves. The people that are doing things on the ground are brigades, communities organizing themselves. When the mayor doesn't, you know, fall within the lines of the colonialism or play their games and during Hurricane Maria, a lot of stuff were given to FEMA and to the government. A lot of collections from here, from people themselves, were given over to them, and they never actually got to the people. They found warehouses and warehouses of stuff 
just sitting there, water, crates and crates of water, just sitting in the sun, never given to people, while people were drinking poisoned water from, from uh, a super fun site, the super polluted people had to drink water from that because they couldn't find any other water. Sorry, I just want to oh. contradict. As opposed to like our community center here in Puerto Rico, we decided we're not going to donate. We're not going to give it to FEMA. We're not going to give that. And we were able to send three crates, three containers to Puerto Rico. And then the actual communities went and got those things and distributed, you know. And so it really shows that the power is in the people. I remember hearing that about that less than half of the money designated by the federal government for relief and Maria ever made it. We need to wrap up uh, this part. We're going to go to a very special interview that Aminta did with Jayesha Dutta from the Climate Justice Alliance in a minute. But I wanted to give you both, if you just take like a, another 30, min, 30 seconds <laughs> each, just to wrap up and tell us a little bit about where we might go from here for more information, what we can do in solidarity. Well, there are a number of things we can do in solidarity. Um, as Camilo said, you find a local organization on the ground. Um, if you're interested in, solid, in, in helping in Cuba, uh, there is um, uh, Pastors for Peace and IFCO, a reliable organization that will get resources. And I'm sure Camille can uh, come up with some specifics for um for Puerto Rico. In other areas of the world, I would say that you should talk to somebody from that area. I can't give specific recommendations. But what I would like to say, however, is that when we're considering the human cost of this, we also have to look at the damage being done to the planet. Um, Ian swept all the water out of Tampa Bay. The ecological disaster that these storms are causing is going to further push the entire world past the tipping point where we can repair or hope to repair and survive the damage that's being done. So we really have to politically, socially, as activists, work to end the fossil fuels, uh, fuel industry's damage that's being done to the climate. This is the only planet we've got. Okay, Camilo, any final words before we move on um, to the video? Can, can I say something, James? Sure, go ahead. I think that when we talk about climate change, the little island of Cuba in 2015 was considered the island with the highest human development interests sustainable development index because I think their philosophy is based on the concept of putting people first. Camilo, I know you're with the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party and that's what uh, if you could just if there's another organization just real quickly uh, we, we have to transition to now. Brigada Oeste in, in Puerto Rico I can give you other other um, organizations in Puerto Rico that actually, you know, that are doing the work um, in, in helping communities and doing ecological work. I can definitely get you that information. Well, if anybody would like to follow up on that, they can definitely write us at the Alliance for Global Justice. I'm James at AFGJ 
org, and we can put you in touch with uh, Emilio. We need to transition now to, we have a really uh, very interesting interview that Aminta did with uh, Jaisha Dutta. So we're going to say goodbye now. Thank you for joining us for this first uh, episode ever. We're going to be doing this monthly, and I'm going to turn things over to Amin. Thank you. We're now going to take a short station break. is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can look for us and like us there. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Puerto Rico. And also I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Florida. Our handle, by the way, on Twitter and Instagram at So True Radio. We now turn our attention back to our coverage of the Alliance for Global Justice Echo Solidarity series entitled Climate Change Disasters in the Caribbean and Around the World. Thank you, everyone. Um, so, for this next audio interview, it's with Joisha Dutta from Climate Justice Alliance. She is an organizer based out of Florida, and we got an interview this morning where she shares with us some of her experiences on the ground, and most importantly, what we can do moving forward, because by no means is this going to be the last storm, unfortunately, but there are different ways to be able to mitigate so much of the harm and to, most importantly, uh, be able to protect our communities and our ecosystems. So we'll go ahead and uh, transition. But before I even do that, too, I want to also mention, uh, please visit the AFGJ.org website. Remember, all of this costs money if you like the work that we're doing. Thank you, y'all. So today with us, we have uh, Joisha Dada, uh, who is with... Um, Climate uh, Justice Alliance. Um, and here we're going to go ahead and talk about what's been happening on the ground in Florida. Um, folks have said that from the coastal cities of Naples and Fort Myers to more inland communities around Orlando, the extent of Hurricane Ian's destruction was difficult to comprehend, even for residents who had survived and rebuilt after their powerful storms. Joisha, why do you think this is? What makes Hurricane Ian's destruction perhaps different or distinct and perhaps some locals even difficult to comprehend, even for folks who have already experienced previous hurricanes? Yeah, I think the kind of size and strength and it looks like storm surge impacts of this are, uh, it seems like the worst case scenario. I think where I live in particular somehow got lucky, but even in the way in which what I saw from the, you know, being part of this mega system for days, like we started kind of feeling in on Saturday, I think Saturday or Sunday. And just like last night was like the last winds, you know, and if you think about that from being on the kind of outskirts, but 
throughout 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 the whole weather event that's still going <clears throat> that's still going and impacting you know Georgia and South Carolina and probably North Carolina today you know I think it's this 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 like the size of it and the scale of it and the unpredictability of like how it um where it went which didn't allow certain people to get out I'm pretty sure you know a lot of elders and trailer parks um so yeah I think Florida is more well is more resourced than Louisiana where I, I was living for a long time um so it's just also interesting to see the different um the different ways that the infrastructure has been built to withstand so there's been you know Sanibel Island uh is very wealthy and I can I can bet that Sanibel Island infrastructure is even though the bridge washed out the houses are there, but they're just right, right close to there, all those trailer parks. That's those are the people who lost everything again, you know, so it's going to be. But I think the the scale and who's effective is also going to be really different on this one. And like the and as as always, it's it's the poor folks. But I think because there's such a class divide in in South Florida and Florida in general, it's going to really expose that. Certainly. Um, and I think that so many of those disparities, right, are so representative when we're under um, an extractive economy, uh, economies that don't prioritize our communities, economies that, uh, you know, continue to uh, engage more so in more displacement. Um, one thing I think about in particular, right, uh, and I would love to know more of your, your thoughts on this, especially since you're on the ground there in Florida right now, um, you know, we saw uh, the ways in which um, Hurricane Ian impacted Cuba, which, uh, you know, is a country that is under an embargo, under many sanctions. Uh, and although we can't deny the disastrous uh, impacts of, of the hurricane, particularly to the infrastructure, all the wreckage that is around, that is, you know, some very similar consequences, obviously, uh, to Florida. Um, I think that there is something to be said in terms of uh, how people are prioritized, how people are uh, given the accessibility to evacuate, um, in, in, you know, in, in, in situations of, of precarity. Um, what are some of the challenges uh, that Floridians face uh, when it comes to hurricane season? And I may, you know, want to expand that even not just to Florida, but uh, to just uh, the Gulf in general in the, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's um, it's kind of living with with this constant uncertainty and you know willingness to leave. That's part of living here. That um, I think is more or leave and lose everything, right? Like lose everything material um, becomes something that people are faced with again and again. And I think that's part of living with, preparing for. Be you know, like I was. I think as you go through these experiences over and over again, I hate the term resilience and there is, I'm trying to figure out a way to own that term because I do think it's been used against a lot of vulnerable communities. And at the end of the day, we actually, we have to have it, right? And so how do we, um, how, you know, part of seeing the mutual aid networks that, you know, I'm new to Florida, but so I'm, I'm this is gonna be my opportunity to finally get involved in knowing community here like florida is 
especially suburban Florida is very different than New Orleans where I was living for so long and had such a tight-knit community. So I think this is also um, part of what we need to get better at and, and prepare for is building those relational networks of kind of care and support that I have I've noticed very, very deeply um, in, in moving from a place where there is such a strong community in New Orleans, not really sensing that here in Florida. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping it's there. I know there's a lot more government resources and this is a political state. So it's gonna be really curious to see how um, people like DeSantis take this to their political advantage. Um, and all of those things that I think were very different, uh, seeing how disaster response varies according to the political uh, capital that the country gives them. So Louisiana is kind of never in the cards and wasn't really paid a lot of attention to or given what it needed to um, recover from the many, many storms of the last several years there, um, including my roof in Zeta. So in my roof here is probably the same thing that happens. So it's like losing your roof literally back to back <laughs> is part of the um, reality of, of living in uh, this place that we love. Yeah, certainly. It's really interesting, you know, you mentioned um, previously living in New Orleans and um, I would love to know more about the particular dichotomies that exist uh, between Louisiana and Florida. Um, just because even on a personal level, I also used to live in New Orleans. Um, so I am I'm familiarized, right? You know, after after um, a hurricane, um, you know how folks would uh, come together and uh, you know provide uh, different kinds of resources, even if it was you know oh the neighbor down the street or a couple blocks down, they still have power. They would set up you know charging banks, things like that, right? Or or people would yeah. all just sort of meet up. I wonder. Um, you know, if if that has been experienced in Florida, and if not, um, how how can we establish community? Something that is so uh, dire and needed on a day to day basis, especially you know when uh, we're in, in in a lot of these instances, right? Especially when it comes to climate, it's it's so challenging. You know, they're not really things that we can you know you can't stop a hurricane from from coming, but we can find different ways um to manage so much of the of the damage to be able to show up for one another so um yeah it makes me think too you know what would you say uh communities and also ecosystems are in the direst need of what are they most in need of yes communities and ecosystems gosh that's a good question building relationship and rebuilding our kind of faith in humanity i think the last couple of years if if we're gonna get through this climate crisis we have to believe in and care for our fellow humans in a really deep way as well as with the planet and, and really reintegrate our understanding and communion with nature um so we can get back into balance with each other and with with the planet like even this, like looking at the storm and how it was kind of a very kind of unbalanced but strong force, I feel like reflects the condition of humanity in a lot of ways. And so I think what we need more than anything is kind of realigning and getting back into balance with ourselves, with each other, with the planet. 
um, from a very deep place of like healing and re reverence and remembering how we can live like with the planet instead of constant like fighting her, you know, like that's the the paradigm that's been used for so long under patriarchy and white supremacy, you know, so we have to get back to a different way of being with the earth. Yeah, for sure. I also um, wanted to inquire a little bit too, you know, obviously as we, we understand so much of climate change has been propelled again by, by extractive economies, your organization in particular is an alliance, excuse me, very specifically of frontline communities it states, you know, quite literally, quote, challenging the extractive economy that is harming people and ecosystems. I know, you know, it's it's really it's a really challenging thing to to answer as a whole, you know. Um, but where do we begin? How can we begin? Uh, what solutions should we be looking for? And how can folks uh, support your struggle? I think getting involved with your local or as local as you get, depending on where you live, is someone who who lives in a very, very suburban environment that does not have much mutual aid, but there's a mutual aid network for Central Florida and for South Florida. And so I'm gonna you know, be reaching to get involved personally to be more connected locally since I've moved here recently. I think in places like New Orleans, New York, you know, big cities all across the country, there are so many different local networks of mutual aid going on to involved in for and you know if and when the climate disaster comes to you because it's only going to get more and more i think climate justice alliance has a great list of groups you know um, another gulf is possible is one of them but there's lots of groups all over the country um, i'm sure many of them have volunteer opportunities so i think just getting more connected so that we're not just living in our little bubbles having to feel like we're we're you know fighting fighting the the came climate and fighting the earth, but kind of living together and and with each other in in mutual aid and solidarity. Like I think it's I think it is you know it is possible. That's that's the hopefully the silver lining of the just recovery model, right? If we can actually recover in a way where we come back stronger instead of more fragmented and divided. Um, no, certainly. I feel like establishing and building solidarity, right? That's the only way that our communities are going to be able to thrive, especially under systems that continually, you know, take so much from us, whether that's our land, you know, whether that's accessibility to food sovereignty, or whether, you know, that's accessibility to necessary resources, you know, when we're met with climate disasters right what can we do in order to stay in solidarity and, and in unity with one another and have you know guidance from from shared principles right knowing you know that these aren't things that are isolated events that they're uh so deeply intertwined and, and also caused by you know racial capitalism from patriarchy white supremacy you know so I guess, you know, just to, to uh, end, end it off uh, in this interview, what are your thoughts on this year's Atlantic hurricane season? Now that we've had Hurricane Fiona, Hurricane Ian right now, I believe it's already gotten to the, gotten to the Carolinas, particularly South Carolina, and they've had such severe impacts. What are your predictions for this, for this hurricane season? And how do you think that folks will be able to 
to really concretely mobilize if possible? Yeah, I mean, I am still hopeful that the calm of the beginning of this hurricane season comes back. I really, you know, I I don't want this just to be a late blooming season and continue to have real bad storms everywhere. I would really love the Louisiana coast to be spared this season. So um, just because I know all my, my, my folks there have been just, it's been year after year there. So I'm really hoping that region can be spared this, this, this year. Um, so that's kind of the energy I want to put out there because folks deserve a break. You know, I know I, I, I am uh, sadly not surprised it came came my way that I'm I'm dealing back to back, but uh, folks, um, it, it's just it's been so much that hopefully it, it dies down the rest of the season. This is the peak time. The next week or two, this, this next weekend's not looking like anything's coming. So hopefully we can make it another week or two and make it into the end of the season without without anything bad happening. And like I said, there's mutual aid networks, especially if you live in a coastal area, um, just getting involved with um, your you know, local, local groups and regional networks and national you know, groups if you want to follow kind of at the policy level the things. There's been some, some big wins for grassroots groups, getting Manchin to take his side deal off the table, which was really giving a handout to the fossil fuel companies, and that was really grassroots organizing. So there's also things you can do, even if, um, you know, you want to, if you don't live somewhere that has an active mutual aid network, there are things that at national um, policy levels, we need people at wherever you are. So Climate Justice Alliance um, is a good resource for that too. Great. Thank you so much. All right, folks, this is Joisha Dutta with Climate Justice Alliance, giving us her analysis on the ground in Florida in, in regards to the most recent Hurricane Ian that is still making its landfall uh, right now in, in uh, South Carolina. Thank you so much, Joisha, for your time. We really appreciate it. And as always, we'll continue to uh, keep organizing um, and uh, keep building solidarity and engaging in, in different modes of struggle, no? To be able to protect our, our communities, to be able to take care of one another in an era that is so dire and, and so important and necessary. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very glad today to have as our featured guest, Lucho Garate. Lucho is a Peruvian journalist and the director of Peru's Comunicambio media outlet, as well as a leader in the Peruvian Communist Party, Patria Roja. I first met Lucho when I visited Peru in 2013, I believe it was. I remember you were an avid bicyclist. Are you still? I love bicycles and riding. Oh, great. And later you would campaign for and win a seat on the Lima City Council. And I believe that your platform had a lot to do with making it a more sustainable city, more bicycle friendly, if I remember correctly. Lucho, for our final question, we're going to return to the Amazon. And this is of special interest to us as international solidarity activists and eco-defenders. Colombia's President Gustavo Petro, who has a very difficult task of trying to move Colombia towards peace, towards a better deal, but uh, it hasn't changed the fact that Colombia is a still a Pentagon military colony in so many ways. Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, has suggested the creation of a special NATO 
and Latin American military force to fight fires on the Amazon, a move that would give a new level of U.S. NATO access in the region. Brazil's president-elect Lula da Silva has appealed to European nations to help protect biodiversity on the Amazon, and he's suggested that one way would be to help research and sustainably develop its potential pharmaceutical and cosmetic uses. Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, has called for the three Latin American nations to hold a summit on the Amazon and develop their next steps in coordination with each other. In closing, what do you see as the way forward in saving biodiversity in the Amazon and beyond? Well, that's a very difficult question, James, I have to tell you, because what you describe is the situation that really the, the governments in Latin America, they don't have the resources really to make you know adequate protection of, of the environment. So they are trying to make some agreements with the international community on other countries especially the rich ones, the, you know, the powers, the European, the Americans. But it's a very dangerous also, I think, approach because we know that, the, you know, the, the America or the North America and the U.S. government or the European Union, they have also interest, you know, in the natural resources in Latin America. So we have to discuss possible agreements about this. I think we cannot oppose to every economical initiative getting in the Amazonian regions of our countries. But I think we can start fighting and maybe like a regional force, something more autonomous, no agreements between the Amazonian countries like Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, even Bolivia, to start getting coordination with the armed forces, the police forces, also uh, environmental authorities to fight more uh, strongly, you know, the illegal activities, mining, logging, the narcotics also, no, narcotraffic. These activities are destroying very rapidly most of the uh, Amazonical environment. So I think we can start with that. Then we have to also make some agreements about the what is called here extractivismo, no? what Petro also talks about that, about how to reduce the extraction of oil in the Amazonical region, also that made a lot of mess and disasters, ecological disasters. So I think there is a path. It's a very difficult task, I think, because our countries here are in this struggle between economical development and growing and the environmental protection. That's a very huge and difficult struggle in this global capitalism we live on. I think we have to discuss this very carefully, um, seeing how to also protect the way of development of each country also. No? Well, thank you very much, Lucho. We're out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, for her editing of today's show. I'd like to thank our board up, Gary Baca, and also thank the Alliance for Global Justice in particular, their Echo Solidarity series. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-7350-230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. You all please stay well and safe.